0: Here we are in a space of uh, however many acres you're trying to manage of timberland. You're trying to produce wood fiber for a market, and you're trying to do it in a way that's economically viable. And you also are trying to produce, I would say, superior, but at least adequate, but I'd say we're after superior biological outcomes for the species and ecosystems that are also there.
1: Welcome to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Stoffer curtis a member of the Stoll Reeves Environmental Land Use and Natural Resources Practice Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders in the agribusiness, food, beverage, and timber industries and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe at stole.com that's S-T-O-E-L.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Greetings listeners, welcome to this episode of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Stoffer curtis My guest today is Galen Schuler, Vice President, General Counsel and Corporate Affairs at Green Diamond Resource Company. In this episode, Galen and I will discuss his role at Green Diamond, his experience working on protected species issues, and where he sees opportunities and risks for timberland owners when managing protected species compliance issues. Galen, welcome to Deeply Rooted. Thanks so much for being here today.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to speak to your listeners.
1: So I'd like to just start with you and a little bit about your story. If I remember correctly, you began your career in private practice before going in-house with Green Diamond.
0: Uh, that's right. Uh, I started my legal career at actually a couple of large law firms in Seattle, based there, and I was pretty much emphasizing regulatory issues and litigation there. And then uh, after I made partner, uh, I was invited to apply for general counsel position at Green Diamond Resource Company, and that was back in 2004. And that was the beginning of my now 19th year uh, at uh, Green Dive.
1: Wow, 19 years! Thank you for that overview. One of the reasons that we wanted to interview you for today's podcast is that you have a lot of experience with protected species issues in the timberland context and have developed a bit of a reputation as a thought leader on protected species issues. Can you tell me a little bit about your work on protected species issues?
0: My experience at Green Diamond, of course, includes all that implementation, development and implementation of plans and agreements. It also includes all the association work we do for other people's plans and permits uh, and uh, compliance issues and listings. So there's uh, been a lot of what I would call intervention litigation uh, that uh, is trying to uh, get good public policy, commenting on public plans and programmatic plans and permits. There's been some litigation defending our own permits. And then there's all the implementation stuff. And I don't know if I should take a deep breath now and tell you about all the implementation if you'd like me to. I could kind of try to summarize it, but there's a lot.
1: Well, I think we'll pause there. Um, You know, I think one of the things we're particularly interested in is talking about these voluntary conservation agreements that you've um, helped create for the company and I, I guess what, where I'd like to go next is to ask you a bit about what you see as the most challenging aspect or aspects of dealing with protected species when you're working on these types of plans, particularly in the forest landscape.
0: All right. Well, of course, it begins with, forget the law for a moment, it begins with operational and biological complexity. And uh, here we are with a, in, in a space of uh, however many acres you're trying to manage of timberland. You're trying to produce wood fiber for a market, and you're trying to do it in a way that's economically viable. And you also are trying to produce, I would say, superior, but at least adequate. But I'd say we're after superior biological outcomes for the species and ecosystems that are also there. And we're trying to do it in the same space. So there's a lot of stewardship and uh, knowledge and understanding that has to go along with trying to make both of those or all of those things happen in that same space. It's also a dynamic resource. So uh, it's not just, uh, you know, you build something, you have some impacts, you go offset it and you're done. It's, uh, it's going to evolve over time, both as uh, uh, the fiber you think you're growing and as the habitat you think you're growing. And you're trying to project that. And so you have a lot of uncertainty and a lot of modeling you're trying to do to see how all these things are going to work together or not. Then uh, some of the other complexity is you have a strong public interest in the resource you're managing, even if it is a private resource. And I would say it also comes with uh, a healthy amount of skepticism about whether or not you can actually achieve all of these objectives in that same space. And uh, it would be, you know, interest in public, but also within agencies, the regulatory agencies who I would say it's fair to fair to guess that a lot of the people who have dedicated their careers to those agencies uh, are advocates for the resources they're trying to protect uh, and steward. And so they want you to prove to them that you know what you're doing. And so that's part of the complexity. And then there's this idea that we are in a business that has a long-term investment horizon and we need assurances and stability and a long-term perspective on conservation. And we're doing that in a an environment that sometimes I would call a regulatory immediacy or immediate results or sort of a reactive environment. Uh, and so we're trying to balance all that long-term perspective and stability with uh, also satisfying, I need it now, and I need to know today that you're in compliance and it's going to be okay. And then, of course, surrounding all that is the litigation and the rigidity sometimes of multiple different regulatory frameworks that apply to the same space, then you have to get to agreement on the appropriate goals and objectives for that space you're trying to manage. And a key issue here is trust. Are the people you're working with actually trusting you and are you trusting them? Do you do you you both have a meeting of the minds that you are after and believe you can get to an outcome that's both good for the business on a voluntary conservation plan or agreement and for the resources you're trying to protect? So there's got to be trust on that. And then there has to be some agency buy-in. So the people that are working with you have to believe in voluntary conservation plans as a as a real good tool for conservation. And they have to be a willing once convinced to be a champion for that because there will still be plenty of skeptics. I'm saying this as federal ESA, but we also have some state ESAs that we deal with. And so same thing for, uh, say, California's ESA, which has real teeth and it has real permits. And the uh, same thing there, you have to develop an effective partner. And when you get there, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, over the years, over those 19 years, I feel like our relationship with California's Department of Fish and Wildlife has grown to that place of trust where we work together. And we were able to do that on a safe harbor agreement for Martin under the California ESA and started with the state and then that turned into a A federal approval under a 4-D rule. But whether it's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NIMS, or your state Fish and Wildlife Agency, you have to get that buy-in on voluntary conservation programs and trust. Uh, And then there's the ESA Section 10 process, which is, you know, you're finding the HCP handbook, just sort of overview of that. But uh, it tries to integrate a lot of different requirements of federal law, not just the ESA, in a very complicated process. And you have to navigate all of that. And uh, I guess part of it is experience helps you and the agency's experience. And I feel like the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has been working hard to improve that process. But there are still many challenges in that process that I could give you some specific examples of. But we'll wait and I'll stop there and let you continue with your questions.
1: So it's safe to say there are multiple challenges when you're dealing with these dynamic resources on the forest landscape, but you remain in the mix working with the wildlife agencies on these voluntary conservation agreements. Um, What are the opportunities there? Where do you see um, opportunities for the company within this um, compliance space? Yeah.
0: One of the finest examples of where, where we see opportunity is complementarity between operations and conservation. Not everything we do is an adverse impact to a species. Not everything we do is bad for their habitat. And so finding you can be finding encouragement and in fact, results in finding those places where your operations, your management style produces good results for habitat and for species outcomes. And they do exist. So uh, I will put that at the top and, and I could give you lots of specific examples, but, um, that's one big category. They exist and you should pursue those and find them. Another one is, and this has been difficult because of the structure of the ESA and the way that listings come about, and The sort of the regulatory impacts come in serial fashion with each listing. But the act and the act is set up to be implemented that way. But it also says you should take an ecosystem approach. And an ecosystem approach would not be species by species. It would be by habitat type, or by ecosystem. And early in the ESA Section 10 program, back in the 90s, there were some multi-multi-species plans that actually were allowed to take that approach. And so they would identify a habitat type that would be conserved on the landscape. And then they would get species coverage that was based on gilding or ecosystem or habitat types that cover lots of species. And so there were some plans that had Well, 50 or more species covered, including one that Green Diamond has from from the year 2000 for its Washington Timberlands, 51 species. Uh, Plum Creek had the I-90 plan, which was even bigger in terms of the coverage. And those fell into disfavor because of the level of analysis required to cover every species in detail that was being included in the plan. And uh, that's unfortunate because we are now in a, at a point where people try to do a few species in a plan because that's all the analytical capacity y- you can afford to do to get the plan approved. But if we could get back to an e- ecosystem approach, that is actually a more efficient way to do it. And it's really what the, the act is after. And I would say that the way the National Marine Fisheries Service has approached it with the aquatic species, whether it's the programmatic, hcps in washington or the 100 development in oregon that is you know inherently it's an ecosystem approach so it, it does work where you identify a bunch of aquatic species that would uh, benefit from your focus on aquatic system conservation and then you cover all of those and uh, we could do more of that with terrestrial so uh, i would be encouraged by that and then one other thing i'd say that uh, over the years, I, I just it has a lot of appeal to me, and I'm glad I'm glad we moved in this direction. And that is what I call the Safe Harbor Agreement approach, uh, which is the net conservation benefit standard. And you folks that follow the ESA closely will know that Canada Conservation Agreements were for unlisted species, and Safe Harbor Agreements were for listed species, uh, and they had different standards at first. Uh, but the Safe Harbor Agreement, being only for listed species, had the The standard that was actually made sense. The Fish and Wildlife Service did go ahead and move CCAs over to the net conservation benefit standard. So that's progress. And now they've got new rules out that would allow safe harbor agreements to apply to unlisted species, which also makes sense. And the reason why that makes so much sense and it's so appealing is because the safe harbor agreements essentially make it possible to say, look, we're going to just deal with where we are today and landowner, you make things better. And if you make the population expand, its range expand, or its habitat get better, you're producing a conservation benefit and credit towards a net conservation benefit. And if landowners are not punished for making things better, that's very attractive to make things better. So uh, that the Safe Harbor Agreement tool, the net conservation benefit standard, using more of that And making it available in more situations is a great idea.
1: So I think that's a great segue to my next question. Um, Given your experience working on habitat conservation plans and other voluntary compliance agreements um, under the Endangered Species Act, is there anything you would change about those programs to make them more attractive? You touched briefly on the proposed regulations, but I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about what you think about those Proposed regulations for improving efficiency and predictability and, you know, whether you see, you know, additional opportunities there. Okay.
0: Well, there are some good things in the proposed Section 10 regulations from the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they, and they are uh, picking up on some of the hurdles that have confounded applicants and I think the agency in the past. One of them is being very careful about defining the scope of the action when they're approving a voluntary permit application. And they're clarifying that what they are authorizing is the incidental take of a species. They're not authorizing the underlying lawful land use that's typically regulated by local government or state government. And what that does for them and for everybody else is it ties all of their process to the scope of their authority because they're not authorizing things over which They have no authority that should limit the inquiry, the uh, the decision making process in terms of things like NEPA and and also the National Historic Preservation Act. And too often, and you know, everybody uh, we can all be happy that we have a National Historic Preservation Act and it has its purposes and its goals. But bootstrapping the National Historic Preservation Act into making the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service into a cultural resource protection agency is not, I think, what anybody intended or Congress had in mind. And you can end up bogging the entire species conservation process down in trying to get the Fish and Wildlife Service to worry about cultural resources over which they have no authority. So uh, defining the scope of action is really important in that respect. Moving the safe harbor concept over to unlisted species is another one that I mentioned that it's uh, also in those rules. One that uh, I don't think is in the rules, but we've asked for and commented on is making it clear that when you do a safe harbor agreement and you're setting your baseline, and this I would say probably true for any analysis, uh, in the context of a large landscape of resource management, your baseline has to be a landscape approach and not a habitat element approach. Let me give you an example. If you're a rancher and you want to do a safe harbor agreement, the baseline has to be viewed as the landscape and your cycle of management. If you look at, and this will be an exaggeration, but if you look at the baseline from a blade of grass point of view, then saying that you can't alter the baseline means, well, you can, you can have a ranch in safe harbor agreement, but you just can't do grazing. Well, now, would that make any sense? Same for a forest environment. If the baseline is every tree that's there today, then we're out of business if the baseline is... You can't alter the trees that are there. It has to be a landscape approach that looks at how much canopy cover do you have or what age classes do you have across the landscape? And so far, I think that has been implicitly okay with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the other agencies that implement it. But if it could be clarified in rule, that would be helpful because there are still people who will argue otherwise and it needs to be cleared up. Um, The NEPA reforms, some of which that actually uh, made their way in lately through the uh, Deficit Reduction Act, great, you know, timelines. And um, one that I think has been, and we're going to be trying this out, I think it's really helpful to have both in Section 10 program and in NEPA, that the reasonable range of alternatives doesn't include things that are technically and economically infeasible. Why would you do an in-depth analysis and analysis in detail of an alternative that a business would never undertake because it can't afford to do it and never would do it? Uh, that's a waste of everybody's time to analyze that alternative in detail. So I'm glad to see improvements like that. One of my other favorite axes to grind. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it under the maximum extent practicable standard for this is for HCPs and then take permits, but it's a principle that I think is important across all mitigation. And that is, I know there's a valid reason why agencies don't want you to stack mitigation or or take credit for something that's uh, already been used. Uh, so, for example, if Green Diamond sells a conservation easement uh, to an insurance company, that uh, needs to offset some natural resource damages to marbled miralets, and now we've created a set-aside stand for marbled miralets, and we've been paid for that, and it's being managed for marble miralets, we can't turn around and take credit for that conservation easement in an HCP. That makes perfect sense. On the other hand, if we've been for 30 years setting aside a bunch of habitat to protect the northern spotted owl, and we've been recruiting older trees and stands for the spotted owl. And now we need to do a marvel mural at HCP because all this retention is giving us more and more potential habitat for the marble mural at. And we say, well, we want credit for all this retention we've been doing and the fact that we're going to continue to do it across the landscape. And we want that credit as a habitat benefit for another species that we've never previously addressed in an HCP the lot, that should be OK. Uh, it would not make sense to say otherwise, because what you would do is punish those who have done the most and the early actors and tell them the more you've done, the more you impinge on your capacity to conserve, the more we will expect of you. And that's where this interpretation of the maximum extent applicable has to take into consideration the cumulative effects of regulations. And allow, there's legitimate stacking, and that is, and it's back to the scope of the action. If you've already had incidental take permitting for one species, but not for another, and under an ecosystem approach, what you've been doing for one species benefits other species, and you want to formally address them in a conservation plan, you should be able to talk about the things you're already doing that are going to continue to benefit these other species and get credit for it. So I'll put that under maximum extent practicable, but it's a common sense ecosystem approach to mitigation. And then I would say, and this is outside the voluntary permit space mostly, but I would say that the ESA would benefit from less litigation. I don't think the Fish and Wildlife Service is benefiting from all the litigation. Uh, I don't think that most of the constituents of the Fish and Wildlife Service are benefiting from it. And I guess that would have to take an act of Congress, but I think citizen suits maybe should just be limited to section nine and all the stuff that's administrative procedures act, section four, seven, 10 agency actions should not be citizen suit items. And uh, we could have a little less uncoordinated hijacking of the federal agency and its resources by separate judicial decisions sprinkled across the country.
1: So I want to circle back briefly to some of the comments you made on mitigation. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently issued updated mitigation and compensatory mitigation policies. Do you see anything promising in that new guidance?
0: Uh, so I did have a chance to to review that new mitigation policy. And uh, I thought my impression is that it uh, it was an improvement on past approaches and the improvement is that essentially the Fish and Wildlife Service, with rigor, has given itself lots of discretion to use common sense. And it kind of gets back at what I just was going on about with the maximum extent practicable issue. If you if, if an applicant is doing something good for the species, producing a net conservation benefit, making a long term commitment that's going to build the ecosystem elements that you need for multiple species. Uh, making a positive contribution to recovery and whatever your plan or agreement is, uh, is going to secure that uh, and a high probability of success for the covered species and its habitat. It shouldn't be uh, a mitigation policy that says, well, that's all really good, except I need a three to one ratio of acres. So it's really qualitative and outcome based instead of a sort of a rigid Uh, ratios sort of approach. And I think that's really a good idea.
1: So I want to shift gears here and talk a bit about process and procedure. I know that for many of our clients, a voluntary compliance option like a habitat conservation plan or a safe harbor agreement might be appealing, but it takes the services so long to review the pros plan and process the permit that it is not practical for the business. Have you had similar experiences with, with lengthy timelines? I think I know the answer to that question. And a follow-up to that is, is there anything you've done on your projects that has helped move the permitting and environmental review processes along?
0: Yes, we've had those experiences. Uh, when I, I first came to Green Diamond, and we didn't, we didn't go into all the plans and permits, but uh, one of the first things I was supposed to do was push the aqua- what we call the aquatic HCP in California Across the finish line. And uh, so I arrived, you know, end of 2004, and it was finally done in 2007. But it was started 10 years before that. And so that I think is probably too long. And the reason why it took so long, and there are several reasons, but a common element because the, the forest HCP, which we started shortly after that, also took about 10 years to get done. Uh, the common elements that are frustrations in that process. And so some of these, I would say, uh, are not something the permittee can help. So it's a little bit of an agency thing here I have to talk about, but it's really important. One is at the outset, the agency you're working with really does have to have buy-in. The people that are working on it, the team, have to have buy-in on the Section 10 program. If you assign people to the plans and to the work who actually don't believe in Section 10 and don't think it's a good part of the ESA and are uh, and are sort of would like to second guess all of the years of prior work that were done by their colleagues who negotiated and helped to develop an HCP. And they would like to start over on the negotiation, ask a couple hundred questions on the record that have to be re-asked and answered or want to draft a jeopardy opinion on the HCP that their colleagues have negotiated that will slow you down. And so you, you can't have that sort of thing, that sort of no buy-in fundamentally you have to have a champion and you have to have a team from the agency that can stick together long enough, especially for key personnel to give you a window to get through the development and approval. And, or, you know, right now, I feel like we have that, by the way, on an HCP we're working on. I'm very grateful for it. And then some of this stuff is beyond contr- the control of the agency. People retire. People die. Uh, of course, the longer it takes, the more likely you actually expose yourself to people could end their career. People will get reassigned. And then the Fish and Wildlife Service, I don't know if, how it works necessarily in the other agencies, but they do a lot of it's part of their career ladder. They do a lot of detailing. And so somebody that is detailed to you, or somebody that's working with you in the field office suddenly gets detailed and they'll disappear for a few months. And uh, that can be disruptive too. And I, now if they have a deep bench, or they have a lot of people that, that are bought into the, what, what the team is working on, then that's, that's easier to handle that. But sometimes you lose key people for a while and it slows you down. Uh, so those are, those are on the agency side. And then, so what, what should an applicant do? Well you work closely with your uh, field office to try and keep the team together you identify the windows when they come together and you need to be prepared to move on that window of opportunity when you've developed an understanding and a relationship and you've got people briefed on what you're trying to accomplish and you're negotiating through and drafting that HCP and getting it in front of people and so the best thing i could say about that is a permit t applicant should be prepared to serve sequester or focus the people. And this is difficult because people have other jobs to do. And so with our biological staff, you know they've got a lot of operational responsibilities. When we ask them to hunker down and try and get through the development of an HCP, it's really hard to do. And that's what you gotta do. And I I remember back in the day, Plum Creek, when they did their native fish HCP that's in Montana, a guy named Mike Jostrom for a, a year or two, his only job was get that done. And so being able to focus was, that was a, a good idea.
1: That's a great recommendation. So, what's on the horizon? I mean, I'm not asking you to disclose any proprietary information, but are there any protected species hot topics that you're focused on in 2023?
0: Well, there, uh, I think we've already commented. So, we'll be curious to see how the Fish and Wildlife Service Section 10 rules turn out. Um, and so, we'll be watching that. Uh, there are specifically for green diamond. We're working on a marble mural at HCP. Uh, the explanation of that is we've been doing no take, and that has worked for a long, long time. Just a you know a informal no take policy in consultation with the state and federal agencies. But we've done so much retention for other species yeah. over the years that it's become more and more difficult to to rely on a no take approach. So we've moved over to working on an HCP. Uh, and I would say in parallel in Washington state, a lot of the landowners who have been doing forest and fish since, well, really effectively since the year 2000, uh, they also are pursuing safe harbor agreements for the marble muralette as sort of programmatic template approach, uh, because, uh, they've been doing a lot of retention that now it's beginning to look like will grow into muralette habitat, some of it. So that's in Washington. Then, of course, there's the implementation of the uh, Private Forest Accord HCP in Oregon. So that's a hot topic to to go from the statute now into a federal programmatic permit plan. And then from a Green Diamond perspective, again, uh, since we're on the east side and we know that, uh, that the Private Forest Accord uh, would be mostly designed for, I mean, there are anadromous fish everywhere and aquatic species everywhere, but from a business perspective, it's mostly designed to, for sort of a high productivity forest on the on the western side of the state. We, we're wanting to, to find some flexibility in the private forest accord for what we have, a, which is mostly a forest rehab project in central Oregon, south central Oregon. And so uh, we've been working on some safe harbor agreements that would focus on the best anatomists and bull trout fish resources we have. If we just do the private forest cord straight up, we'll be, we have a lot of a lot of roads and a lot of land, and a lot of it has nothing to do with protected fish species. And if we have to spend all of our resources on, out on that landscape instead of on the key resources, uh, that would be a mismatch. So we'll be looking for that. And then we have... Familiar issues, you know, Fisher has been relitigated it will be up for another status review, potentially based on a potential settlement of fruit litigation. Uh, expect the tree voles in, in Oregon and elsewhere to come back around for a status review. We've got candidate species, the foothills, yellow legged frog and the western pond turtle that are under review. Pollinators are a hot topic. And experimental populations being reintroduced in the forest environment, uh, the condor, in Northern California, and probably the grizzly, the North Cascades. So those are there's always a bunch of interesting stuff going on.
1: Yeah, just a few things in the protected species uh, space right now. Yeah. So before we go, I have to ask, uh, what's your favorite listed species? And
0: uh, thank you for asking. <laughs> I think it is the the humble martin. The humble martin is a is a rustle a little. Uh, let's see, it would be either a big weasel or a little fisher, depending on which end of the spectrum you want to approach it from. It's very cute, very charismatic, feisty and cute. But what I really love about it is it is the ultimate mythbuster. Early scientific literature on the Humboldt Martin is another, it's another old growth obligate. It needed to be in, in large, uh, stands of large old growth with uh, a lot of what they call it ericaceous shrubbery beneath them. And the more we look for martens the more we learn about them, the more we find that their habitat needs are pretty doggone flexible. Like they're not just in old growth. They're in, in uh, really rocky places with hardly any trees um, called serpentine soil areas. They're on the beach in Oregon in the beach pines and uh, so they seem to be a lot more flexible in terms of their habitat needs than we first assumed. And the other thing that, uh, that was assumed, well, a couple more understandings that seem to be being blown apart, is that the, uh, it was an early paper that said that the uh, Fisher, which is another muscle, the Fisher's sweet is the Martin's sour because they thought they were competitive for the same space. But in fact, we're finding them living in the same space. And another myth that's really important is that they can't live in a managed forest landscape and, uh, we're finding them on green diamond and they seem to be spreading on us and they seem to be reproducing in a managed landscape that was pretty intensely managed, uh, not so long ago. And so, um, I love the Martin for all that. It points towards the, the opportunity for complementary that I was talking about that in fact, sometimes operations can produce habitat for these species and think we're fine in that space.
1: Galen, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and for sharing your story with our listeners. It has been great talking with you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit Stoll.com. Please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and may not reflect the views of Stoll LLP. Participation in this podcast by any individual is not an endorsement of any view or opinion expressed. This is not legal advice and the podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship.